So we are coming, uh, we're coming on the home stretch of this Gospel of Matthew, this story of Jesus. And I want to, as you open your Bibles to Matthew 26, if you don't have a Bible with you, the Bible in the pew is available, and we're going to be on page 883 in the pew Bible. We, in, in our tradition, the, the Protestant kind of evangelical church tradition, we really, really um, focus a lot on the divinity of God's Word. God's Word is God-breathed, 2 Timothy teaches us. We believe that the Bible is true in everything that it teaches because it comes to us from God. But the Bible is also a human book. And that's, that's kind of a weird tension. It's a lot like the tension that we see in Jesus. Jesus is God, and he's also man. And there's a tension there. And the Bible is God-breathed, but it's also human-written. And some people get a little weirded out by that, that if people are involved, then it must be broken somehow. And, but that's not necessarily true. There's no reason to assume that because Matthew had a hand in crafting this book that there's anything wrong with it. He was inspired by God, but he used Matthew's own abilities and gifts and talents to craft a specific story. And because of that, the Bible is this extraordinary piece of human literature. If you've taken a Bible as literature class in college, you know that the Bible is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature the world has ever seen. And I want to point out something about this section of Matthew because I think it shows the beauty of Matthew as an author. Matthew gives us two accounts in this section of people on trial. Jesus is on trial, he's facing the Sanhedrin, but in a very similar way, at the same time that that's happening, Peter is on trial. It's not an official trial, but his, his uh, ethics, his values, his allegiance to Jesus are being tested in kind of an informal court of opinion. And in order to illustrate that this morning, we aren't going to do what we usually do, which is go straight through the passage. We're going to jump around a little bit. So um, keep your Bibles open. You might have to, I have to turn a page in mind to get to Peter's section. I don't know if you do. But we're going to start taking a look at Jesus and his trial, and then we're going to jump quickly to Peter, talk a little bit about what pe happens with Peter, and then we're going to go back to Jesus and back to Peter, and we're going to do it several times. So I'm, I made a chart that we can hopefully keep up with. And the first, the first section of this chart has the word accusation on it. The first piece of this narrative that Matthew crafts has to do with an accusation. Look at verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though, they, even though many false witnesses came forward. And finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. So the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of Israel, and they have arrested Jesus, and they've brought him to the high priest's house, like the, the chief justice's house. 
in the middle of the night. Uh, we're not going to get into it, but a lot of what happens here is probably illegal from a Jewish criminal perspective. You're not supposed to have trials at night, but they do it anyway. But they, they don't want it to feel super illegal, so they kind of have a pretense of justice. The, the Old Testament says you have to have two witnesses that say the same thing in order to condemn a person. And so they, they, they're trying to find these two witnesses. They, they don't want to totally throw out every sense of justice. And so they keep running through all these people, but these witnesses, they just don't agree on what's happening. They don't have their story straight. But then two people come forward and they say that he said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the thing is, that's kind of true. In the Gospel of John, John records Jesus as saying that I could destroy this, or you could destroy this temple and I could rebuild it in three days. And John specifically says he was talking about his body. He was talking about his death and his resurrection, the fact that he would be killed and he would rise from the dead. So the witnesses kind of tell the truth, but they don't really get the meaning behind it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Somebody has said something that you've said and they don't really get it. And you're like, well, I didn't really mean that. I meant this other thing. And you're, you're misrep- misrepresenting my words. I know I've been in a situation like that before. And these witnesses, they bring an accusation against Jesus. Accusations are, are difficult. Accusations tend to catch us off guard. Somebody accuses you of something, you're usually not expecting it. That startles you. Uh, several, many years ago, I, I, I was part of an early child care business. And uh, we, we had a, a family who... Uh, had a young boy that we were pretty sure was being abused by his father. And we actually, we called the police and, and informed them of this. And there was an investigation and arrest and, and there was a trial. And, and because we had called the police, we were called on to testify. And uh, I don't, I, th- I think everybody else was on vacation, so I got to do it. I don't know why, but I had to go to court and I had to testify to what I had seen. And so I was in the box in the county courthouse and the lawyer was in the room and, and the lawyer was you know, pacing back and forth and being very lawyerly and he said, is it not true that you have a room at your child care called the naughty room where you spend disobedient children? And at first I thought, well, is it true? Does that, does, is that real? No, no, we don't. We don't have a room like that. What are you talking about? But for a minute, that accusation felt kind of real. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of scared and caught off guard and I don't really know how to answer and, and I don't want to say anything wrong. I'm at court. I'm under oath, right? And later I found out that he was just pulling a scene from the previous week's episode of Super Nanny that was on the air at the time. And he was just trying to rile me up and get me to say something stupid. And this is what happens in this, in this scene. Jesus, I have to assume, he knows what's coming, he knows what's going on, but it's a tense scene. It's a fearful scene. But notice Jesus doesn't stand up for himself. Jesus doesn't... Ha- correct his accusers. He doesn't say, no, 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 you got it wrong. What I really said was this, or what I meant was this. He lets the accusation go. 
he realizes that he doesn't have to respond to it. I find this very challenging. I've, a couple months ago, I got rid of my Facebook account, but before then, I would have discussions with people on Facebook. And they were usually really cordial, friendly discussions, but there's that moment, if you ever have a, a discussion with somebody on Facebook where they post something, and you're like, yeah, that's partially true, but I don't really get that, and, 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 I, and I've got a rebuttal to that, and then you, then you reply, and then they read your reply, and then they post something again, and then you have to say something again, and then they reply to that, and it's like, who's going to be the last person? Who's going to be the, big, uh, the bigger man or bigger woman and be like, I'm not going to say anything left. I'm, not gonna, I'm just, I'm just going to end this conversation. I'm not, I don't have to respond. That's really hard. I always want to be the last one to respond. I always want to stand up for myself. And Jesus doesn't. He's silent. But now look at, jump down to verse 69. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. See, Peter is being examined by a much less intimidating court. It's not the Supreme Court of Israel. It's a little girl. And this girl accuses him of something. You were with Jesus. And that accusation... That's totally true. It's not partly true. It's not twisting Jesus' words or Peter's words. It's absolutely true. And Peter, Peter does something interesting. It's different than what he does later. He doesn't, he doesn't straight up deny it. He just kind of wiggles out of it. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And I've, I feel like I'm really good at that. I'm really good at wiggling out of stuff having a hard conversation, understanding what people around me want to hear, reading the room, avoiding conflict. I was having a conversation with someone. I had just met them. This was not going to be a relationship that was going to last. It was kind of a short-term business thing. We started talking about the world. Uh, he asked me what I did for a living. I said, I'm a pastor. He started talking about Jesus. But then it, then it kind of took a weird turn and got a little a little racially insensitive out of nowhere. And I could have like stood up and said, hey, you really shouldn't talk about people that way. But I didn't. I just kind of changed the subject because I didn't really want to engage with that. And it wasn't that important to me. I was not going to talk to this person again. And, and I walked away thinking like, man, I, I just kind of wiggled out of a hard situation. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that ever feels that way, but I feel good afterwards. Man, I should have said something about that. I should have, I should have challenged his assumptions about the world a little bit because that was, the thing that he said was wrong. But this is what Peter does. Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We're tempted to sin in the same way. Oftentimes, just like an accusation, we don't see it coming. We're startled by it. But here's the thing. We should see it coming. Jesus saw it coming. Jesus told everybody, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tried. He was ready. But Peter, Peter wasn't ready. 
But he should have been. Like, what did he think was going to happen? He wandered into the high priest's courtyard with all of the enemies that had just been there arresting Jesus. How did he think this was going to go down? See, I make foolish decisions. I surround myself with temptation, and I, I don't think through the consequences of my actions. And that's when sin happens. One of the uh, heads of our um, network in some curriculum, in some discipleship curriculum that he wrote says this, uh, if you are like most people, you have a hard time admitting that you are intentionally looking for opportunities to sin and be self-destructive. I was reading that this week, and, and my immediate gut reaction is, no, no, I don't. I don't, I don't act that way. But I think the reality is I, I probably do. I probably think I'm stronger than I really am. I think I'm a better person than I really am. I think I'm equipped to handle things that I'm not equipped to handle. We don't know what Peter was thinking, but he probably was still feeling like, man, I'm going to march in there and I'm going to stand up for Jesus. But he didn't. He's accused and he wiggles out of it. So this accusation, it's followed by an oath. Jump back to verse 63. Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I assume here that the high priest, like, raises his voice. He's getting threatening. I charge you under oath to answer me. And Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 not to swear oaths. Not because oaths in particular are like bad, but because we should be people that are honest. We should be people whose word can be taken as true. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't have to everything you say with like, I swear on my mother's grave and a stack of Bibles and whatever else to prove that you're being honest. Just be a trustworthy and honest person. And, and Jesus doesn't swear an oath. He doesn't swear on anything that would have held value to them. He just says, you have said it. And like we've talked about before, this is a Hebrew idiom. It doesn't mean that's what you say, but not what I believe. It means it's just Yes. So like a little, kind of a backwards way to say yes, but it's a pretty common way that they would have said yes. But the, what the high priest means by the question and what Jesus means by the answer are not the same thing. See, the Jewish authorities understood that Jesus, as the Messiah, would be a military leader that would come and conquer Rome and overthrow the priest's power structures. But Jesus says, no, no, you, you, you're still misunderstanding it. In the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. He is not out to restructure the Roman government or liberate the Jewish people at this time from their occupation. He's there 
to bring about a renewal of the entire creation from the right hand of the Father. Jump down to verse 71. Peter, when he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. So Peter's accused of something and he responds in fear. Peter's afraid. He's afraid because he's leaving the place where he feels danger. He's in the courtyard with the enemy, and now he's going to get out. He leaves. He goes out the gateway, and he runs into another servant. And she says, yeah, you were with Jesus. And this time he doesn't just kind of wiggle out of an uncomfortable situation. He straight up lies. I don't know the man. And then he uses an oath. I swear in the temple that I don't know the man. It's funny. Fear, fear is the enemy of faith. See, I I have to assume that as a human being, Jesus in front of the the Jewish Supreme Court is probably afraid. There's probably fear in his heart. But he anchors himself in that moment in his identity in God. Someday soon you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This is who I am. I am the Son of God. I am connected to my Father. But Peter doesn't do that. And oftentimes, I don't do that. When we're afraid, we easily do foolish, sinful things. We make rush judgments. We flee from what we consider danger. We lash out when we feel cornered. You may have heard of, um, in psychology, there's something called the lizard brain. It's this flight or fight or flight response that we all apparently have. Um, We used to have a pet pig Her name was Penelope, and she was a good pig. She was an obedient pig, but you know how dogs are obedient because they love you, because they just want you to be happy as their master? Pigs are not like that. Pigs are obedient because they love food, and if you feed them and train them, they will do what they're told. But Penelope would, there would be times where she didn't want to do what she was told, And if she was out in the yard and you approached her, she'd run away. She would flee the situation. But if you cornered her, if she couldn't run away, then she'd fight. She'd growl. She'd snap at you. If you've never picked a pig up and heard heard a pig scream, it's it's fantastic. (laughs) But this is what we do, too. Maybe, maybe you're a fighter. You, f- you sense danger and you're a fighter. You, you resort to sarcasm, passive-aggressive comments. You get ar- argumentative. You get threatening. Maybe you, you're one that commits actual violence. You're, you're a brawler. You resort to manipulation. Or maybe you're a fleer. Maybe things get hard and you leave. You lie. You shut down. You disengage. You put in your earbuds and turn on YouTube. You just, you just don't want to talk about it. 
Whether you flee or fight, what you're saying, in my fear, I don't want to bear the weight of this situation. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. This is uncomfortable. This is what Peter does. He's, he's walking away from the situation, but then he's cornered and he lashes out. I don't know the man. And he lies. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words to his protege, Timothy. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. It's important here that Paul says, Timothy, you have a gift. God has given you a special calling. And the very next verse, he says, but God's spirit does not produce fear. Why? Because living your life in the calling you've been giving is scary. If you're out doing what God wants you to do, it's probably going to be hard. Timothy, you might get afraid if you do what God wants you to do, but that spirit is not coming from God because God's spirit casts out fear and gives you power and love and sound judgment. While Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and whatever fear he may be dealing with is set aside because of who he is and his calling and his relationship to the Father, Peter, Peter's walking in fear and he's in sin. This accusation leads to an oath and then it leads to a curse. Jump back to verse 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What's your decision? And they answered, he deserves death. Jesus says that I'm the Messiah, I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God, all of those things, and the high priest gets angry. He tears his clothes. A sign of, of grief, of remorse, but also an expression of his anger that this peasant carpenter from northern Israel would, would call himself God. It's blasphemy. He's making himself equal to God. And he puts it before the whole court. What do you think? And they all answer, he deserves to die. They curse him. And the only way the Sanhedrin will get what they want is by sending Jesus to death. Jesus is a troublemaker. He is overturning their power structures in very subversive ways. The people are following him. They're losing influence. He needs to die. And they found a way to kill him. Blasphemy. But then in verse 71, after a little while, those standing there approached and said to Peter, you know, Peter hasn't left yet. You really are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I don't know the man. Peter's from northern Israel, the Galilee region, and he has a very distinctive accent, very different than the city folk in Jerusalem. 
And everyone in the crowd picks up on it. You're obviously from Galilee. You were totally with Jesus. And then Peter, it says he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know the man. And it's, it's possible, and I've heard this taught, that Peter is cursing himself. May I be cursed if I'm lying to you. But it's more likely that he's actually cursing Jesus. I don't know that bleepity bleepity man. He's using the harshest possible language that he can to distance himself from Christ with a curse. The high priest gets angry. He accuses Jesus of blasphemy. The Sanhedrin curse him to death. Peter gets angry. He wants to run away. And he curses Jesus. Anger clouds our judgment. It makes us say things and do things that are out of step with our confession of faith. And it's funny because anger is, remember Paul said that that the spirit of God is one of power. Anger is also a spirit of power. It's kind of a counterfeit spirit of power. You ever, you like being angry? I kind of like being angry sometimes. It feels good, it's an adrenaline rush. I was thinking about all of the, all of the heroes in popular culture that get angry. Uh, Unikitty from the Lego movie. She's super cute and fun until something bad happens and now I'm angry and she gets stuff done, right? Or the Incredible Hulk, mild-mannered Bruce Banner, scientist, until something bad happens and then he turns into a green rage monster. He gets angry, and then he gets stuff done. We kind of like that. But see, angry is a counterfeit spirit of power. It's not the spirit of God at work in us. Jesus, in his silence, in his standing there, it's speaking the truth and taking the abuse. That's the spirit of God at work in him. Peter's and the Sanhedrin spirit of anger causes them to do things that they will regret. Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Now these these verses are really interesting because we like to use the idea of be angry and do not sin. I'm gonna be angry but I'm not gonna sin. That's a quote from the Old Testament and the fuller quote, if you you look it up, says that um, be angry and do not sin as you, uh, as you think through your day on your bed. And so the context of that quote is you've, you've gone to bed for the night and you're angry. And then Paul expands on it. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So again, Paul's assuming you're in bed. So if you get to a place when you've ended your day and you're thinking through your day and you're angry, Paul says, get rid of that. It's not an excuse to just be angry and, and say, like, I'm angry, but I'm not sinning. Like, no, you've, you're angry and you're in bed. Like, just get rid of your anger and go to bed. In James, he writes, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. We always, we want to be people that have righteous anger, that like, I know we're not supposed to be angry, but, but in this instance, I can be. This is righteous anger. And I've, I've become convinced that maybe you, you get one righteous anger in your life. <laughs> maybe one time you could be like, no, I'm to- it's totally right for me to be angry right now. But every other opportunity, my guess is your anger is all mixed up in selfishness and pride and hurt feelings and fear and all manner of other ugly things that you need to get rid of. Dallas Willard wrote, there is nothing that can be done with anger that cannot be done better without it. And I think that's a really important idea. If you're you're getting angry, that anger is probably not going to serve you well. It doesn't serve Jesus' accusers well. It doesn't serve Peter well. We see an accusation followed by an oath, followed by a curse, and then some prophecy. Verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him, Jesus. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? They put a bag over Jesus' head and they punched him in the face. And then they wanted him to guess which one of them it was that hit him. They were making fun of him. Everyone knew he was a prophet. That was his reputation. And because he didn't retaliate, because he didn't fight back, they took advantage of him and made fun of him. You're not really a prophet. You can't fight back. You can't win this. You can't tell us who hit you. But then look at verse 75. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. There is a prophecy there that Jesus made about Peter. Not too long from now, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. And Peter had put it out of his mind. In the moment, in the in, the, in being startled with an accusation, in being fearful, in being angry. He, he didn't even think about it until the rooster crowed. Oh yeah, Jesus told me this before it happened. I love how Matthew is weaving these stories together, showing Jesus walking in the Spirit, fulfilling the will of his Father, and Peter just just outside doing the exact opposite. And it's tempting, I think, to walk away from this story and go, be like Jesus, not like Peter. Right? Jesus is our example. We should be striving to live our lives like him. But the truth is, I am like Peter. I put myself in tempting situations and I act surprised when I sin. I let fear guide my decisions instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. I get angry and I say and do stupid things. 
The truth is, I, I don't have what it takes to be like Jesus. I can try and try to be better, to do better, but I will fail. And so will all of you. But that's kind of the point that Matthew's making. These two similar trials happen, and Jesus perfectly passes the test. Not because he has anything to prove, but because he's walking through it for me. Jesus lives his life perfectly and goes to his death, not because he's a criminal, but because I am. Because Peter is. Peter leaves and he weeps. And Peter's only hope is to weep, to feel the sorrow of his own guilt and shame and to rely on the goodness and grace of Jesus to forgive him. Many years later, Peter writes a letter to some churches. Listen to what he writes in 1 Peter 2. He's talking about suffering. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Imagine Peter reflecting on this night outside Caiaphas' house while he writes this. Jesus was not deceitful, but I was. Jesus was insulted, but he kept quiet. They beat him, but he didn't fight back. Peter walks out and he weeps for his sin. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, the only thing that will save Peter from hopelessness and death is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. The fact that Jesus walks into this world and gives himself up for the sake of people that don't deserve it is the only hope that Peter has. It's the only hope that you and I have. And we have a choice. Do we trust in Jesus? Do we rely on Christ or not? Next week, there's gonna be a really heartbreaking story of another disciple of Jesus who betrayed him. But he chooses to fix his guilt and his shame on his own. And it goes very badly. Peter, Peter's restored. Peter's forgiven. Peter's given hope through Christ. And that hope in Christ is the same thing that we have access to by his grace, by his love. And as we, as we take communion, we, we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. At this point in the story, it hasn't happened yet, but he's on the way to the cross. He has set his face to the 
job that he has to do. He is going to save sinners like you and me. And we have an opportunity to say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I fail over and over and over again where you did not. And I need your goodness, your life to be applied to me. And when we remember the death of Christ through the communion meal, we, we eat the elements. And that's, there's a reason for that. It's, it's a reminder that we are bringing Christ's goodness, Christ's holiness into us. When God looks at us in Christ, he doesn't see the things that we said in anger. He doesn't see the stupid decisions we made because we were fearful. He doesn't see the the myriad of sins that keep coming up in our minds. He sees Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' perfection. And that's the offer. He takes our sin, we get his goodness. And for many of us, we we know this, we've believed this, we don't need to become Christians every week, but communion is a reminder that as you've gone through a week and you're looking back and going, yeah, I didn't really live like Jesus this week, I kind of lived more like Peter. The communion meal is a reminder that Jesus knew before he died what was going to happen this week. And Jesus gave his life for you. And his grace is still big enough to cover your sin. And maybe you're in here and you, you're not a Christian. Maybe you've heard a lot of church things. Maybe you're not sure. But that's the offer. All of the broken parts of your life can be exchanged for all the perfect parts of Jesus by trusting in him his grace, his goodness, his death, and his resurrection for you. And that's a message that we need to remind ourselves of constantly because we're always going to find ourselves in situations that look more like Peter than look like Jesus. And we're always going to need Jesus to be the perfect representative on our behalf. And so as we take communion together, come and get the elements, take it back to your seat, take a pass by the artwork, and just spend a few moments reflecting on your week. When did you let fear take control? When did you get angry in a way that was inappropriate? When did you, like purposely go into a situation that you knew sin and temptation were going to be there. Repent of those sins. Ask for Jesus to forgive you of those sins. And remember that he has. And that his love for you is expressed in his journey to the cross on your behalf.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com. Thank you.